The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Believe it or not, this is our 20th message in this chapter. I was at the gym on Monday working out with a friend of mine, and uh, he's a pastor as well, and I told them we're finishing chapter 12 this week, our 20th message, and he asked me how many verses are in chapter 12. I said 21, and he just started to laugh at me. I mean, it's more than one, one verse per message. That's pretty good, right? We're making progress, and uh, we're going slow. Uh, that's obvious. We're going slow because this is such a critical section of Scripture. Uh, we, we just are, are so in need of what Paul has to tell us here at the end of Romans chapter 12. We've been in this little series now, our ninth message this morning, on verses 9 to 21, which is all about what we call gospel-shaped relationships. How our being in Christ and our relationship with Christ and being transformed by the gospel needs to affect our relationship with other people, whether it's believers, those within the church, or unbelievers, those outside the church. Those relationships must be stamped by the gospel. And we need to hear this because we tend to lose sight of of, uh, what God wants us to be involved in in terms of relationships. We tend to lose God's perspective on how to treat other people, especially when those people hurt us and mistreat us and are unkind to us and harm us and oppress us, our natural reaction when we're in those situations is to retaliate. It's to get back. It's to do something to even the score. It's to do something to to get some retribution from that situation. That's our natural inborn tendency is to want to pay back the person who has done this to us. It's human nature. It's our conditioned fleshly response to harm the person who hurt us. This desire is almost overwhelming at times when we've been treated unjustly. And and so Paul knows this about us. He knows our natural inclinations. He knows how we're bent when we're treated unjustly. And so as he wraps this chapter up, he, he gives us some very practical instructions on how to handle those who hurt us. We've looked at 22 of these 25 principles on a gospel-shaped relationship. We're going to come this morning to the last three. And for one last time, would you follow along as I read this text? Starting in verse 9. Paul says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible. So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's a list. It's a list of 25 ways that our relationship with Christ, our being in Christ, needs to transform how we treat one another. We're going to look at these last three this morning, and as I've asked you over the last few weeks, I would ask you again this morning, who is the person who's hurt you most? Who is the person who's harmed you? Who is the person who has 
mistreated you? Who is the person who everything in your, one, in your flesh just wants to retaliate against them? Who, who is that? And how does this text need to inform that relationship? Number 23. Let's dive right into this. Number 23 is a vengeful reluctance. A vengeful reluctance. Look at verse 19. Paul says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I think the first thing that we need to recognize as we come to a text like this is that we live in a culture of revenge. We live in a society that has a lust for revenge, a society that celebrates revenge. In fact, retribution against those who have wronged uh, people is really the plot line of a number of popular and famous movies. In fact, it is a so predictable of a plot line that it's become well known. There are a number of steps that many movies go through to, to trace this line through. In fact, I was reading an article this week about how the script in many popular movies is exactly this script of retribution. So here are the steps. Pay attention to these next time you watch a movie. Step number one, show an innocent person being horribly wronged. Step number two, build the audience's self-righteous anger to a fever pitch. Do do something to to make the audience want to cry out for justice. Step three, give the victim some kind of weapon or some opportunity to get back. Step number four, let the victim get revenge on the person who has wronged them. Step number five, the audience applauds when justice is served. Very predictable plot line. It's our culture. It loves and applauds revenge because it has a thirst for it. In fact, there's even a proverb. You may not have heard of it. I I didn't hear of it very often, but it's this. Revenge is a dish best served cold. You heard that? You ever thought about what that means? It means this. It means that revenge is more satisfying if it's not exacted immediately. In other words, when revenge is delayed and executed well after the, heart, or the heat of anger has dissipated, it's much more satisfying than in the heat of the moment when you get to plan it and prepare for it and it's calculated. It's so much more satisfying. Revenge is a dish best served cold. That's what our culture thinks. That's not what Paul thinks. It's not what God thinks. It's not what the Scriptures tell us. And Paul comes in verse 19 and he says, When it comes to the people who do you wrong, there is only one biblical response. Verse 19, never take your own revenge. Period. No exceptions. No qualifiers. No caveats. Never take your own revenge. Ektikeo is the Greek word which means to punish or to vindicate or to avenge or to exact a vengeance or to procure justice for yourself. Paul says there is absolutely no place and no situation in which you will and should take your own revenge. It's the second comprehensive and absolute statement in this chapter. Look, look, up to, look up to verse 17 because he has another absolute statement in verse 17. He says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And he comes here in verse 19 and gives us another absolute statement like that. Never, ever, ever take your own revenge. It is a timeless principle. It is an absolute comprehensive statement that applies in every situation to every person in every culture and any people group and whatever time and scenario you find yourself in. Paul says absolutely hard line in the sand, never take your own revenge. Let that sink in a moment. 
Just, just let, the, let, let the absolute nature of that principle sink in. You will never in your life be in a situation with another person where you are allowed to take revenge ever. Paul's very adamant. Very, very adamant. In fact, he repeats this a number of different ways. He set it up in verse 14. He said, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. He says it in verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Verse 19, never take your own revenge. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He's hammering this principle. He's saying it in as many different ways as he can, and he's just going after this because he knows our hearts. He knows our tendency. He knows our desires. He knows our fleshly response when it comes to a person who harms us. And so the repetition here underscores just how often we need this reminder. So you say, well, does that mean people can just walk all over me? I mean, does that just mean that people can harm me and mistreat me and oppress me and hurt me without any consequence? I mean, where's the justice in that? They can just go and get away with it? Is that what you're saying? Not at all. Because look at the next phrase. Beloved. I love that. Beloved. I, I think he almost knows that we need to hear the words, I know how difficult this is. I know what your flesh is screaming. I know what you want to do. I know how you want to respond. But beloved, I get it. But you need to leave room for the wrath of God. You need to leave room for the wrath of God. You need to let God take care of this. You need to let God be God. You need to allow God to be the one that deals with that person, not you. That's where he's going with this. He literally says, but give a place for the wrath. If you interpret the, the original literally, that's what it says. But give a place for the wrath. In fact, the words of God are not even there in the original. If you have a New American Standard Bible, look, and you can see those two words of God are actually in italics, which means they're, they're not in the original text. So it literally says, but give a place for the wrath. So the wrath of who? Someone suggested it's the wrath of the injured person. It's you. You just need to kind of let it out so it doesn't explode and force you to blow up inside. That, that's one possibility. The other possibility is it's referring to the wrath of the opponent, meaning just let the anger of the person who mistreats you run its course. Just, just get out of the way. Just let it go. That, that, that's a possibility. But I don't think either of those really fit the context. I think the best understanding here is that this is the wrath of God. That's why the interpreter supplied that phrase of God, that the best view here is that we need to recognize that God is judge and we need to leave the execution and vengeance of his wrath to, to deal with that situation. You see, what, what, what Paul's getting at here is you have to understand the character of God. Do you really believe that you have a better perception on how to handle this, this situation than God, who is all-wise and all-knowing and perfectly holy and perfectly righteous, and there's not a flaw in him, do you really believe that you've got a better handle on this situation than the supreme ruler of the universe? Paul says you need to let God be judge. As one famous pastor has said, if you hold the grudge, you doubt the judge. Do you doubt the judge? Look how he goes on, verse 19, 4. Here's the reason. Here's the theology behind it. You want to know why you as a believer must entrust these relationships to the Lord? Here, here's the theology. Here's what grounds this. Verse 19 says, For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, this is God's prerogative, not yours. This is God's business to deal with that situation and that person. Vengeance does not belong to you or to me. It belongs, as Paul says, to the Lord. He quotes the Lord here from, from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32. He's actually quoting from the Pentateuch. He's quoting from that, that book where God says, 
Vengeance is mine, I will repay. So God is the one who has reserved the right to execute justice in that situation. That's his prerogative. It's not yours. It is not your responsibility. It is not your right. It is not a place where you are allowed to go into. It's not your job to execute justice on evil people. That belongs to God and God alone. And so it's almost as if Paul is saying to the Christian who wants revenge, you need to step aside because you are in a territory you do not belong. You are doing something that does not belong to you. You have overstepped your bounds. You have crossed the line and you are encroaching on God's territory. It doesn't say vengeance belongs to us. He says vengeance belongs to God. And so, as I just said, it's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 32, which is Moses' song, where Moses is detailing the the apostasy of Israel that would come upon them and how God would deal with them because of that, and then how God would deal with their enemies. Listen to just a couple other verses in that chapter. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 36 says, The Lord will vindicate his people. Deuteronomy 32, verse 41, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold of justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries. It's God. It's his business. So Paul quotes that here in Romans chapter 12 to communicate the same idea, that you and I are never in a position and never have the authority or the ability to respond this way. In fact, let me just flesh out those two things that I just said. I want you to write down two reasons why we have no right to do this. The first one is this, that God has not given us the authority to take vengeance. He's not given us the authority to take vengeance. That's why he says in verse 19, vengeance is mine. It belongs to God. It is His authority. He is the righteous ruler and judge of the universe, and only He has the right to execute justice like this. He alone has the authority. You don't have it, and I don't have it. So we need to leave the fate of those who mistreat us to God's hands. Listen to some of these verses that describe just the nature of God. And as I said earlier, this really comes down to your understanding of the nature of God. Do you believe that He and He alone possesses the authority and the character to be able to, to deal out this kind of retribution in a proper way? Listen to some of these verses. Psalm 94, verse 1. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. It's His nature. It's who He is. It's part of who he is. Proverbs 20, verse 22, do not say I will repay evil, wait for the Lord. It's his job. It's his responsibility. Nahum 1, verse 2, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Do you get the idea? This is part of God's nature. It's part of His attributes that belong to Him and Him alone. We we don't have the right to do this. Now, we want justice, and there's an appropriate place for that, but we don't have the authority or the character or the wisdom or the omniscience or the ability to carry out this level of vengeance. It belongs only to God. He may delegate it to the government, which we'll look at next time in Romans 13. And he may delegate it to church leaders in the form of church discipline. But no individual believer has the authority. None. There's a second reason we need to think about this. Not only has God not given us the authority to take vengeance, number two, he has not given us the ability to take vengeance. God has not given us the ability to take vengeance. And what I mean by that is we have no ability to properly avenge evil. think, Think about this with me. Imagine just for a moment that God actually did entrust to you the ability or the, rather the authority to, to accomplish justice, to, to deal with justice in the way that you think it needs to be meted out. Just for imagine for a moment that you have that authority and the question I want us to think about is, do you have the ability? 
And I would submit to you, we don't. Because we're finite, and we're fleshly, and we're still stained by the remnants of sin, and we're still prone to our self-serving ways, and we're still biased, and we don't know what's in that person's heart, and we don't know the right level of justice to give, and in some cases, you would actually mete out more justice than is necessary. In other cases, you would not mete out enough justice as was necessary. We're not God. We don't have the ability to even do that. It's not within us. There's too much fleshly biases and too much sin in our own heart that that we would have no ability to accurately assess the entire situation. And so for those two reasons, we need to leave it to God. Are you? Or are you sticking your nose where it doesn't belong? Turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 24. I'm going to show you a couple examples. Leave your finger here in Romans chapter 12. I want to take you back to a couple verses, a couple passages in the Old Testament. David himself is a wonderful example of this very principle. You'll remember that David killed Goliath and the people began to shout his praise and began to sing songs like Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his ten thousands and the people were singing his tune and all of a sudden Saul gets jealous. Saul wants some accolades for himself and David's getting it all and so Saul begins to get angry towards David and begins to seek him to put him to death. What would you do if someone's out for your life? What would you do if you had an opportunity to kill the very person who was seeking to take your life? What would you do? Watch what David did. 1 Samuel chapter 24, it says, When Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And so Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Literally, the Hebrew says, to cover his feet. You can see the picture in your mind. And David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. And the men said to David, and the men of David said to him, Behold, this, this is the day of which the Lord has said to you. Behold, I'm about to, to give your enemy into your hands, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. And so David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe. That's not what I would expect. He cut off the edge of Saul's robe. And it came about, verse 5, that afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. And so he said to his men, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, so to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. You see it? It's not my job. It's not my authority. I don't have the right to do this. This is the Lord's anointed. I have no, no business taking vengeance this way, David says. So verse 7 says, David pursued his men with these words and persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul and Saul arose and left the cave and went on his way. So afterward, David arose and went to the, out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My lord, the king! And when the Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of the men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave, and some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord, for he's the Lord's anointed. Now my father, see, indeed, see the edge of your robe is in my hand, for in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. Know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, for I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait to take, uh, for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. He could have killed him. He could have snuffed out his life. 
This man was on a witch hunt to kill him and to, to destroy David, and David had him in his hands. At that moment, he could have taken his life. But he didn't. Verse 16, when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept, and he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me, which I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me, and the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good and return for what you've done to me on this day. Amazing. Go over to chapter 26. One more example. There's another opportunity that David had. Just a short time later, in chapter 26, there's a very similar situation where David could have taken Saul's life. And so chapter 26 begins, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakilah, which is before that place? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having with him 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search for David in the wilderness of Ziph. And so Saul was camped in the hill of Hakilah, which is before Jeshimon, beside the road, and David was staying in the wilderness. And when he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies, and he knew that Saul was definitely coming. So David arose and came to the place where Saul had camped, and David saw that the place where Saul lay, and Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army, and Saul was lying in the circle of the camp, and the people were camped around him. And so David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, saying, who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. And so David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the people were lying around him. So Abishai said to David, today, God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now, therefore, please let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke, and I will not strike him the second time. Abishai says, kill him. Take his life. Exact your vengeance, David. Verse 9, but David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? David also said, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him. There it is. He entrusts his vengeance to God. Or his day will come that he dies, and he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but now please take the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let us go. That's incredible. Two occasions, David has the opportunity to take the life of the very individual who is seeking to destroy him. And on both occasions, David says, we'll leave this vengeance to the Lord. Not my place. Go back to Romans 12. This is exactly what Paul means when he says, leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Are you content with that? Are you okay leaving it there at God's feet? In some cases, God will pour out his wrath on your enemies in judgment at the great white throne when they stand before the Lord and must pay for their lifestyle of rejecting him. At that moment, you will get your due justice. But listen, there's another scenario here. And the other scenario is perhaps God will draw your enemy to himself and save them. And they'll be converted and they'll become a follower of Christ and they'll, and they'll know the joy of having Christ forgive them. And you say, where's the justice in that? You want to know where the justice was? It was at the cross. It was at the cross where Christ hung and said, it's finished. And at that moment, at that point is where their sin against you has been paid. And beloved, isn't that what we want? 
Isn't that not what we want more than anything? To see them come to Christ? So I ask you, are you trusting the Lord? And are you letting God deal with that person in your life according to His perfect plan? Jay Adams has a good way of describing this. He says, quote, Christians who take revenge into their own hands strap on the six guns, coil up their ropes, and ride off into the sunset as truly as did the vigilantes on the frontier. You are a lawless person when you do so. You are taking the law, God's law, mind you, into your own hands, and you are as guilty before God as the person on whom you seek to take vengeance. Vengeance is never sweet because it is a rebellious act perpetrated in the full face of clear scripture that forbids it. Look down at your side, Christian. See those holsters and guns? Loosen the belt. Untie the cord around your right leg. Let the guns fall off as you sink to your knees before your God in repentance, confessing your sin and seeking his fatherly forgiveness. Your wild west days are over. You may have been a gunslinger before you came to know Christ. You have been now inducted into the army of God. Go ahead, strip those guns from your side. You have taken an oath to follow him and serve him his way. He forbids vigilantism. You may never engage in such lawless activities ever, period. So have you entrusted your desire for revenge to the Lord? Husbands? Desire to get back at your wife? Wives? Desire to get back at your husbands? A business associate, someone you work with who's made your job exceedingly difficult? A fellow believer? Someone in this room? Young people? Your brothers, your sister, the person you squabble with at home. Paul says, stop. Stop and leave room for the wrath of God. It's pretty convicting. It's pretty convicting because... If we're all honest, every one of us has a piece in our heart that secretly wants to see that person retaliated against. It actually gets more radical because it's not enough to just not retaliate. It's not enough to just say, okay, I won't seek retribution. And and if you're uncomfortable at this point, you're going to get more uncomfortable with number 24. A supernatural kindness. A supernatural kindness. Look at verse 20. Paul says, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Not only must you not retaliate, and not only must you not seek retribution, Paul says you need to take it a step further. You, you, You actually need to love this person and you need to treat them with absolute kindness. that person who hates you, that person who has harmed you and oppressed you and made your life miserable, the person who has mistreated you, the person who has hurt you more than any other person, Paul says, you go out of your way to serve them. This is countercultural. This doesn't fit the movie script. This is not how it's supposed to work out according to our society. 
so Paul's quoting here from Proverbs chapter 25, verses 21 to 22, which is essentially how he quotes it here in verse 20. It's the same thing. He, he calls for us to actually love our enemies, to, to delight in showing kindness to them. And this is really the practical way of verse 14. Verse 14 has said, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. There's actually a command for us to actually bless those who hate us and be kind to those who mistreat us. And one of the ways you do that is by paying attention to their needs. They're hungry, you feed them. They're thirsty, you give them something to drink. They're in need of some clothes, you provide them. They need some housing, you take care of them. You actually go out of your way in spite of what they've done to you to determine their deepest needs and then to meet those with the resources that you have. Wow. Why? Because the end of verse says, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on their head. What in the world is that? I mean, that's, that's just strange. What, what is he talking about here? There's been a number of different um, um, interpretations of that little phrase, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Let me give you some of the different possible interpretations here. One is that it's a symbol of judgment. That the kinder you are to your enemies, that the more you serve them, it actually has the effect of increasing their judgment that they will one day receive. That's a possibility because it is in the context of judgment. Verse 19 has talked about wrath and God's vengeance, and, and it's possible, but it really doesn't fit the context because the context is love your enemies and serve them, and if that's the meaning, then it actually is saying, well, you actually need to be kind to them so that when they're standing before the Lord in judgment, they actually get more judgment. I don't think that's the way that Paul is talking about. Another possibility, and this is a likely one as well, is that it's a way of making the enemy ashamed of himself. That, that the idea here is that the coals symbolize burning pangs of shame and, and because of your kindness that you've actually treated them more than they deserve and so they, they are experiencing shame over the, how they've treated you. That's a possibility. Perhaps the third one is the most accurate, that it's a way of demonstrating repentance. It's a way of demonstrating Repentance. There was an ancient Egyptian ritual in which a person showed their repentance by carrying around a pan of burning charcoal on his head. Don't, 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 don't ask, I don't know, I don't get it, but that was the culture. You march around, you're sorry, you're repentant, you're contrite, you put a, a thing of burning charcoal on your head and walk around. That, that's the idea here. The idea is your act of kindness actually softens the heart of the person who's mistreated you. can have a softening effect. can have a way of making them ashamed to the point that they are willing to repent and, and maybe even come to Christ. So another way of putting this is the best way to get rid of an enemy is to turn him into a friend. That the best way to get rid of your enemy is to turn them into a friend. Go back to Luke chapter 6. One more thing, one more place I want you to turn. Luke chapter 6. Just turn back very quickly to Luke chapter 6, verse 27. This is consistent with what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. This is exactly what, what Christ told us here. We've looked at this a couple times before, but just look at Luke chapter 6, verse 27. He says, But I say to those of you who hear, love your enemies, and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Now, now, stop right there. Stop right there. This person that I've asked you to think about, this person who's been mistreating you, this person who's, who's been so hurtful to you, have you prayed for them? Have you brought them before the throne of grace and have you asked the Lord to do a work in their heart and work in your heart so that there can be a, a forgiveness and a kindness displayed so that they can come to know him? Have you prayed for that person? Verse 29, whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way that you want them to treat you. 
If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But you love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Watch this. Look at the end of verse 35. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. In verse 36, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Beloved, is that not the gospel? Have we not been the recipients of God's kindness to us when we were ungrateful and we were evil? And have we not been the recipients of God's mercy when we least deserve mercy? And God now says, just apply the gospel, what you've experienced in your relationship with me, apply that to that person in your life that's your enemy. This is a call to practice the same kindness to our enemies that God showed us when we were his enemies. So are you willing to do that? Is that how you're treating that person in your life? Go back to Romans chapter 12. I got an email this week from Alan Hunsinger. Alan and Diane were missionaries in Iran for a number of years, and he, he sent me a little story that I think perfectly illustrates this principle. There's a fellow missionary that they worked with by the name of Virgil. He was um, African-American, and he was a believer who was serving with them in Iran, sharing Christ and being missionaries in that place. He was being persecuted by his Muslim neighbor, and his Muslim neighbor would dump all his trash over the wall into Virgil's yard. And so I, apparently, you can ask Alan about this, but this went on for an, a, a long period of time, and, and he's getting pretty upset about having to pick up his neighbor's trash. So what did Virgil do? He bought the largest box of chocolates he could find and marched over to his neighbor and personally gave him the gift of chocolates. And Alan says, the dumping stopped. Isn't that how we treat each other? Isn't that what Christ would have us do? I was reading another great illustration of this this week. Ernest Gordon was a British soldier in World War II. He was taken captive by the Japanese. He was forced to endure horrible treatment as he was one of those laborers on the notorious railroad of death through Thailand, and he was faced with starvation and disease and mistreatment at the hands of his captors. And then one situation happened as they were POWs. He wrote about it. He says this, there was a group of wounded Japanese soldiers who were being transported to Bangkok. They were on their own and without medical care on this train. Their uniforms were encrusted with mud, blood, and excrement. Their wounds, sorely inflamed and full of pus, crawled with maggots. We could understand now why the Japanese were so cruel to their prisoners. If they didn't care for their own soldiers, why would they care for us? The wounded Japanese soldiers looked at us forlornly as they sat with their heads resting against the carriages waiting fatalistically for death. They were the refuse of war. There was nowhere to go and no one to care for them. And without a word, most of the officers in my section unbuckled their packs, took out part of their rations and a rag or two, and with water canteens in their hands, went over to the Japanese train to help them. Our guards tried to prevent us. But we ignored them and knelt by the, sore, by the side of the enemy to give them food and water, to clean up and bind their wounds, to smile and say a kind word, grateful words of arigato, which is thank you in Japanese, followed us when we left. I regarded my comrades with wonder. Eighteen months ago, they would have joined readily in the destruction of our captors had they fallen into their hands. Now these same men were dressing the enemy's 
wounds. We'd experienced a moment of grace there in those blood-stained railway cars. God had broken through the barriers of our prejudice and had given us the will to obey His command. Thou shalt love. Could you do it? Could you respond? Do you respond to the people in your life with such kindness? I wonder what our families would be like. I wonder what our marriages would be like, our church would be like. I wonder what our workplaces would be like if we readily applied this principle of non-retaliation. I think if I'm honest, most of us would probably be wise enough and mature enough to, to know that we're not supposed to retaliate. I think most of us would be able enough to know that that's not honoring to the Lord, to get revenge, to retaliate. Most of us understand that, that that's probably not the best way to respond to these situations. But I would guess that most of us are not very good at showing supernatural kindness to our enemies. We can hold it in, we can stuff it, we can, we can fake it. But how much do we really show this kind of kindness? So let me challenge you this week. Can you look for one practical way to serve your enemy? Why don't you just think about this this week and, and find one practical way to heap burning coals on the head of your enemy. Send them a note, an email. Call them, stop by, visit them. You say, I could never do that. Then how about you at least pray for them? How about you at least this week take every opportunity, maybe just once a day, you say, I'm going to pray for that person and watch what the Lord does. A vengeful reluctance, a supernatural kindness, last number 25, an overcoming goodness. An overcoming goodness. Verse 21 summarizes this whole section. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. Overcome is the word nikao, which is related to the Greek noun nike, which is where we get our word nike, which means victory. Do not let evil have victory over you, but actually have victory over evil by responding with good. And notice that in this, verse, this final verse, there is both a negative command and a positive command. On the one hand, negatively, don't be overcome by evil. Don't, don't let evil score a victory in your relationships with others. Don't let evil triumph in your relationship with one another. There's a negative. Put that off. Don't respond. Don't let evil triumph over you by forcing you into attitudes and actions that are clearly not pleasing to the Lord. And then positively, here's the flip side, but overcome evil with good. Score the victory by Triumphing over that evil situation by a good response, a healthy response, a glorifying to God response, a humble response, a kind response. Is this not what Stephen did in Acts chapter 7 as the stones were being thrown upon his head? It says, falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And is this not what Christ uttered from the cross? Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Beloved, those relationships in your life which are 
evil, the people who mistreat you in your life, listen, become a platform upon which you display the gospel. So, are your relationships that way? Are you responding this way to the people who've hurt you, mistreated you? I pray for us as a church. I pray that we would respond this way within our families, within this family, within this church, within these relationships, within our fellowship, within our body life. And then as we go out into the world and as we engage the world and as we, we rub shoulders with those without Christ and the people who don't even know Him, that our hearts would melt in mercy for them and forgiveness for them as we seek not revenge, but God's mercy in their life. I told you when we began this series over two months ago that it would change us. And so has it? Has it softened your heart to your enemies? Has it given you a heart for the people in your life that maybe there's some issues with? May we, by God's grace, apply these principles. Let's pray. Father, we need to hear these things. We we need to hear them because our hearts want justice. We want retribution. We want to get back. Sometimes we wake up in the middle of the night thinking about how to get back at that person. Sometimes it's on our minds as we wake up in the morning. It's on our minds when we go to bed at night. It, it dominates our thinking. So Lord, we need to hear these principles. We need to hear your perspective on relationships. We need to ultimately submit our fleshly desires to your greater purposes. So, Lord, I pray for the relationships in this room. I pray for the ones that are broken and the ones that are fractured and the ones that are affected by mistreatment and hurt and oppression. And I pray, Lord, that you do a work. I pray that you'd soften our hearts and I pray that you'd soften the other person's heart and I I pray, Father, that the gospel would be put on display that ultimately they might be one to Christ. So, Lord, give us the grace by your Spirit to apply these principles. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.